0: This is Ian Brannan, and it's great to be back with you. And Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you a very special guest and an extra special guest this week that I'm delighted to introduce for you right now, because uh, this man has been involved very firmly in the country's response to the coronavirus pandemic. You may have seen him standing up in front of that lectern addressing the nation alongside the first minister um, on tv countless interviews on tv and radio and he's very much a man in demand and a very busy man with a lot on his plate at the moment and he's taking some time out of that busy schedule to answer some of your questions here on Erskine Veterans Radio it gives me great pleasure to welcome along Professor Jason Leach the clinical director for Scotland welcome to Erskine Veterans Radio
1: thanks ian it's lovely to be here erskine is and you would expect me to say this wouldn't you kind of close to my heart i have followed the development of erskine over the last oh i don't know decade maybe i knew the former chair very well Uh, for my sins i know your clinical director very well whether he likes it or not (laughs) and uh i've I've toured the homes a number of times so I, i look forward to getting back in person but until then, I'm delighted you've got a radio station. So I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here.
0: And well, delighted to welcome you on as well, because clearly, as I mentioned, you are a, a very busy man. Tell us where we are in the pandemic right now, because it is always changing as far as we know. Um, restrictions are continuing for the next few weeks but I think people just want to know where's the light at the end of the tunnel and where are we at and are we nearly through it and in the next couple of months we might be able to live a slightly different life that we've actually become accustomed to?
1: Yeah it's a big question does not it? I think I think the two words for this week are caution and hope so there is light at the end of the tunnel and on this occasion I don't think it's a train coming to get us, I think it's genuine sunny uplands But we're not there yet, and the virus is not done with us. I'm afraid variants seem to occur at unfortunate moments, just as we're opening. The First Minister announced the 19th of July and the 9th of August as the next two big steps. And we're very hopeful they will happen, but there has to always be a caveat and a reverse gear available. The 19th of July will be all of the Scottish mainland to level zero and removing physical distancing outdoors, which is a huge step. And then on the 9th of August, really the biggest step so far, and that is to remove physical distancing indoors. Now, I have to always put a kind of comma after that and say that all depends on the state of the pandemic, the amount of vaccination we can do, all of that, but I'm hopeful that those dates will stay in place and we really will feel by the end of the summer Very, very different to how we've felt over the last year.
0: I think that's the big question, isn't it? That, that Clearly, it's impossible to answer uh, because we don't know exactly what's going to occur, but people have been following rules for so long, vaccinations, um, particularly, I, I think, with our residents. Now they're starting to be able to meet family again, but they'd like to be able to do that more and and, uh, and get out to, to, to their homes or family homes and, and do more things as well. So that's one of the main questions, isn't it? That When's that going to end? But then we hear in, in the news stories of the Delta variant mutating yet again. And Is that something we should be still concerned about or is that to be expected in the course of this kind of disease?
1: Both of those things, entirely to be expected, but also something we should watch and be cautious about. There are 16,000 versions of this virus in the world. Most of them are kind of irrelevant because they behave the same as each other. But every so often, one of them just mutates. They're not clever, they just randomly mutate. And every so often, one of those mutations gives it an advantage and it begins to win the race and we've had four of them we've had alpha beta gamma and now delta now unfortunately there's lots of letters of the greek alphabet still available so there are now talks of a lambda variant and i'm sure there will be others the the fundamentals so far have stayed the same vaccination is the biggest tool in the toolbox hand washing distancing all those other things we've grown to No, and some hate, will still protect us against these other variants. But we, the country's public health advisors, have to just keep an eye on what that looks like. But the instructions for individuals, it remains the same. Be careful, but go about your life following the rules. And we hope that those rules will be relaxed. And I really hope they can be relaxed in the Erskine family environment, some of which is care homes, some of which I know is individual houses. It's been one of the most difficult pieces of advice I've ever had to give to restrict family access to loved ones. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible thing to have had to advise the First Minister and a horrible thing for the First Minister to have to decide upon. But you can see when the pandemic history is written how vulnerable some of our elderly communities were and the virus still managed to find its way in tragically and and really, really miserable. Uh, in in some families' journeys over these past few months, so I hope, and and I think we are over the worst of that, but we just can't release it all on a Monday night. It's got to be gradual.
0: We're seeing the rate of infection across the whole of the UK increasing, and and that's. Mirrored in Scotland as well, there's a lot of infections going on with the Delta variant, which is racing away. But that said, hospital admissions this time are relatively steady away. Um, Where would we be right now with the Delta variant surging as it is without a vaccine? What difference is the vaccine making to our lives right now?
1: We'd be locked down, absolutely no question. Schools would be closed, care homes would be shut we would be absolutely back where we were, I have absolutely no doubt. And you can see the Delta variant beginning to spread in other countries, other parts of the world, and they are not as vaccinated as us, and they will be in trouble soon. Portugal is the obvious example this week, but it will move Germany beginning to see outbreaks, France seeing outbreaks again, and pretty much every American state now back on an accelerated path because of Delta. So the vaccination program is doing a lot of heavy lifting for us and it's been fantastic. Six million doses, tens of thousands of volunteers and clinicians and procurement experts and all kinds of people really helping us with uh, with getting that done. And I know Erskine it was early on that journey and really played a blinder in getting everybody done just as fast as humanly possible if anybody's listening who isn't vaccinated and you're still doubting whether you should my very very strong advice is to get your vaccine
0: and not just get one but get them both as well
1: it, I, and actually more important to get the second one now because of this variant we, we knew things would change and one of the things that's changed with this variant is the necessity for the second dose not just to elongate your immunity so make it last longer but also to get you decent protection. Your second dose is much more crucial with this variant than it was with Alpha.
0: Professor Jason Leach, Clinical Director for Scotland on Erskine Veterans Radio. And he's going to be answering some of your questions next that you put to him over the last couple of weeks. So those are on the way. We're going to pause for some music first, though. And uh, Professor Jason, what sort of music do you personally enjoy? If we're going to hand over control of our music to you, uh, what would you pick? And, and what's your style of music that you, uh, you particularly settle down and relax to?
1: Well, this is, a, this is tricky It's so much, but I can tell you that my fundamental genre might surprise some of the residents, and I hope put a smile on the face of some of them, and that's country music. Ah. My, my father, when I was a boy, my father was a coal miner when he was young and then became an engineer later in life and a, a lecturer, and I had Johnny Cash playing on record players when I was, before I knew what a record player was. So you have to you have to start with Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash
0: as Johnny Cash and The Ring of Fire playing on Erskine Veterans Radio. The choice of our guest this week, National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach, and more of his musical choices on the way, not just today, but um, indeed on Thursday when he'll be back with us. And right now he's going to make a start on some of your questions. We gave you the chance to ask a question to Professor Jason Leach and see if he can answer as many as possible. And we start with Jackie, who's a relative at the Erskine home, who says, testing of relatives takes a long time to do and is very staff resource intensive. When do you think we'll be in a position to come and visit our loved ones without the need for testing? So over to you then, Professor Jason Leach. Do you see a time when this rule's going to change? Yes,
1: yeah, some of these questions will be a little crystal ball-like, won't they? I, I, can't, I can't give you a date for that. I think it will be one of the things that we'll keep in place for a bit longer than you would hope because it's just a layer of protection there isn't, if you'll forgive me, too much of an invasion because it doesn't stop us touching our relatives or hugging our relatives or wearing masks at our relatives. I think it's one of the things we'll keep for, for a bit of a time because it just allows us to protect people. Now, when we get incidents down to a level where the testing isn't finding many cases, that's when you begin to think about rolling back testing. We, we've had days this week of 3,000 cases So for now, we certainly need it, because the oldest public health intervention in the world is to find infected cases and isolate them from non-infected cases. I mean, we used to do that for leprosy 2,000 years ago and cholera 100 years ago, and now we do it for COVID. It's the most important public health intervention. Find the infected individual, isolate them from the non-infected individuals. I'm sorry to be so blunt, But you can see why that would work for an infectious disease.
0: Margaret, who's a resident in the Erskine Glasgow home, is asking you, uh, why are residents returning to home required to isolate in their bedroom for 14 days, even though they've had three negative tests before discharge from hospital and both doses of the vaccine? It's a question also asked by staff in McKellar House at the Erskine home as well.
1: Again, it's an excellent question. Now, I, I would balance the question with the fact that we have moved this rule quite a lot in recent weeks. So we now don't recommend the isolation of residents if they're coming in from the community, for example, or if they've been away on an overnight stay or on a day trip. So those rules have been relaxed. That's pretty dramatic relaxation. I know it doesn't feel like that perhaps for relatives and residents, but the one area we still remain concerned about is the risk of hospital admission cases then bringing infection into care homes. Forgive the use of vulnerable, but vulnerable environments. I don't necessarily mean the individuals, but the fact that a lot of people live there in relatively close quarters, it just makes us worry a little bit more about that environment. So for now, the only people we're asking to isolate, even with testing and vaccination, is those being discharged from hospital and we've removed the necessity for it from the community and for overnight trips. I'm, I am I look forward to the day when we can remove it from hospitals and hospitals actually in recent weeks and months have managed their internal infection rates very well in this wave so the end is in sight for that restriction but not quite yet.
0: April from the Moving In team says, will there come a point in time um, when the pandemic is, is declared over? How is it all going to end, do you think? And, and when do you think that might be? Uh, that is a crystal ball question.
1: Well, when you see me flying to Vegas <laughs> for my four-week holiday, that'll be the moment when I have declared it over. No, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. But the, there'll be t- I think there's two answers to that, really. There's an answer that is Scottish, and then there's an answer that is the world, isn't there? So so we can't individually declare the pandemic over, but I think we can declare our version of the very severe restrictions over. Now we might have to keep some international travel restrictions and some other elements in order to protect us from parts of the world that still have a pandemic. And and I hope that w- won't be too far away. We Most of the science says we might have to face another winter wave of this virus, depending on what happens. But the global pandemic won't be over until the WHO declare it over. And that's a much, much harder challenge. India, 1.4 billion people, has vaccinated twice the British population. So they've vaccinated 140 million individuals, and that's 10% of their population. So the numbers around the rest of the world are just eye-watering to try and get on top of the whole thing. We need 11 billion vaccines to vaccinate the world. And the WHO are trying to get those 11 billion vaccines from wealthier countries such as us in order to vaccinate sub-Saharan Africa, eh, the the poorer countries of, of Central Asia, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not gonna be over for
0: some time. next question is from Jean who's a senior care assistant and Mary from housekeeping in the Erskine Home who asked the same question when do you think we'll be able to stop wearing masks 100% of the time because they're getting way of good communication and they're uncomfortable to wear throughout a shift and it's a big a big problem for um people in healthcare of course because they uh, the shifts are long and um you know wearing a mask can um, cause uh, a bit of a barrier between communication there.
1: It can. I think that I think the communication point is a very, very good one. I was a dentist and then a surgeon for years when I still had a proper job instead of this chaos. And I, I wore a mask, of course, pretty much all day, every day, long, long days in theatres. But I didn't have to communicate with uh, residents or, or I had to sometimes shout at colleagues who were shouting at me. But so, so I think we'll keep them for a little bit longer they are protective, they're an extra layer. And as you remove physical distancing, for example, they become an even more valuable layer because that's gonna make us go closer to people. So as as we remove some things, face coverings will stay. I think face coverings will stay in the broader community as well a little. So for instance, public transportation, we might still wear them in communal areas of offices where people are coming back to work. Hospitality where it's a bit crowded, maybe if you're going to the bathroom. But I think residential homes will keep them for a bit longer. Yet, I again, I don't think we'll keep them forever. But I think we'll keep them. For instance, if we've got symptoms of a cold, or if we're if we're feeling a bit poorly, then then we may well hold on to them a bit longer.
0: And that's something that happens elsewhere in the world, though, isn't it? That we we're just not used to it, but places like Japan, China, and so on, they they do that.
1: It is the Asia Pacific has a cultural a history of it because they had a SARS outbreak. They had a similar virus a few years ago, more mild, and didn't spread globally. But they got used to that. I think one of the things we'll do, Ian, is I don't know about you, but I have sometimes struggled to work with a bad cold. I've I've gone to work with, Mm. with a bad cold. I think we should stop doing that. I think that's a good public health message. We've now learned that much of what we do can be done at home for many of us. And I think we'll do that going forward, we won't, we won't kind of fight our way through the coughing and the spluttering to get to work because we think it's courageous. I think we'll realise that actually not spreading the respiratory disease is probably more valuable.
0: Scotland's National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach on Erskine Veterans Radio answering your questions and he's going to continue to answer them on Thursday's show so we will work through more of your questions so join us on Thursday for that. Before you go today Jason can you play us out with another musical choice of yours please?
1: So we're going to come right up to date with country this time is that all right so we've done Johnny Cash now we're going to move to very modern country. Now you might need to Depending on your taste, you might need to turn your speakers up or turn your speakers down a little because this crowd can get a little bit loud. This is uh, the Old Crow Medicine Show, who are a little bit bluegrass, a little bit country, and their most famous song is called Wagon Wheel. So let's have Old Crow Medicine Show and Wagon Wheel.
0: We've been taking more of your questions and um, Jason is here now to answer some more. And um, well, here's our next question, Jason, for you to answer. The physio team at the Erskine Home would like to ask, can you clarify the evidence for staff wearing plastic aprons over outdoor clothes when doing outdoor mobility activities with individual residents? How does this prevent or reduce the spread of COVID-19? <laughs>
1: Good on, the physio team. So it, well, it, it, lets, me, it lets me make a, a broader point, this question, because everybody sees the national restrictions through their lens it's quite difficult and i'm not looking for people's sympathy but it's quite difficult to decide what the country should do if you imagine the rooms we're sitting in when we say well we're not going to allow people to leave the local authority or to go to the mountains and the mountaineer says well i won't speak to anybody i will get in my car I will go to a mountain I will climb the mountain back in my car come home that's no risk to anybody and he's right of course no risk to anybody but if we allow the country to do that there'll be 400,000 people on the mountains and then there is risk and the plastic aprons is not quite the same but in the round the experts who do our infection and prevention control led by our chief nurse amanda croft they decide what the ppe should be in each setting now They also try and lend an element of common sense to that PPE and the aprons may well fit into that environment. And the the PPE police are not going to come and arrest the physio team if they think it's gibberish on a windy day when they're wheeling somebody around the garden, that the plastic apron is being pushed over their face and is therefore doing more harm than good that they couldn't remove it. But in the round, plastic aprons over your outdoor clothes protects you from splashes, protects you from the uh, excretions from other individuals. So in the round, the national restriction says, yes, of course, local common sense should prevail.
0: Okay, uh, Mari from Housekeeping in the Erskine home says... Can using bleach for a prolonged time be detrimental to health of residents and staff? I think they're getting through quite a lot of bleach, clearly, at the moment, with the increased amount of, of cleaning and um, sanitation that, that, that's going on. And um, she has a concern there.
1: Yeah, not when used properly. So, of course, it, 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 should, it should be used uh, well and in line with the guidance of the infection prevention control teams and the manufacturer. But the the fact you can smell bleach in the environment or you're using a bit more than you normally would know, that's not a danger to health of anybody, but used badly, of course, if it's left lying around and somebody can inhale it or somebody can touch too much of it, then of course, but not not used properly and well. And of course, I, I sh- it gives me the opportunity to thank those who are in housekeeping across the whole of the care sector, probably a An undervalued group of individuals who have kept our care homes, our residencies very, very safe during this environment.
0: A question from Jackie, who's a care assistant at the Erskine Home, asks the question about will we need boosters for our vaccinations later in the year?
1: Probably is the slightly inadequate answer for now. The mainstream science says that we will probably need our first set of boosters in the autumn and winter of this year. We're not yet sure on the advice whether that will be for maybe the over 50s and health and social care workers like we started with, or it might be for the whole population, or it might be the flu vaccine group. We don't quite know yet. But in in general, yes, we will probably need boosters because the immunity from the COVID vaccine won't last forever. the The science we don't know yet is how long it lasts because this disease hasn't existed for long enough. So the first people to get the vaccine in the programme the vaccination programme only got it in December the research trials started three or four months before that six months before that the first few people in the world got the vaccine so we don't know for sure but I think it will probably be an annual programme for the next little while it may not be the whole population but I think care workers and residents of care homes will be pretty near the top of that agenda.
0: Alison, the home manager at the Erskine Edinburgh Home, says what's been the most difficult part of your job during the pandemic and is there anything now with the knowledge that you have that, that you'd have done differently looking back?
1: So I, this sounds a bit glib, Ian, and, and I, but it's, it's authentic, I promise. There's a lot of people who had a harder pandemic than me. I mean, a, a shift at the Erskine home is a pretty hard shift. A shift in Asda's customer service desk is a hard shift. And a shift in intensive care has been a particularly hard place to be. I uh, was at Monklands hospital a couple of weeks ago and I was in infectious diseases. Infectious diseases in Monklands has had pretty much no mortality for the last 10 years. You survive infectious disease in the main The the last year they've had 88 people die on their war. And I met a care a care assistant who had recently come to work in that infectious disease ward, and she was crying as she told me of stories of holding people's hands as they had died, talking to families. So, so I'm I'm not trying to make my job sound uh, easy, but it is not as difficult as some people's jobs. It it is high stakes, and sometimes it's felt very very difficult to be in the public eye, and be alongside the first minister in giving advice and her making decisions. So I think, I think the hardest part of the job is the intensity and the relentless nature of it. I mean, I they, they haven't had a day off pretty much in 15 months. It does It does feel as though it's never ending. But again, I say I've got a salary, I've got a decent job, I've got a house and I've got purpose. So a lot of people in more difficult positions than me. There's loads of things I would have done differently knowing what we know now. I mean, there's some scientific things like we didn't know that asymptomatic spread would be as big a problem as it was. We didn't know that we would need as many tests as we now need and we didn't have the science or the chemicals or the reagents available to us. I, I would have probably communicated better with stakeholder groups and care homes and residents and families if I could go back and do some of that again. But at every step, and I I promise this is true, and others will have to judge whether this is true, at every step, we've made the best decision we could with the information we had
0: at the time. Uh, next question then is um, from Pauline, who's the Deputy Director of Care at Erskine. and says, do you think politicians and government advisers should visit care homes more often in the future to familiarise themselves with the exceptional work that happens there? Of course, you mentioned yourself that you, you've uh, visited Erskine a, a number of times yourself, but I think broadly across the rest of uh, government and, and the people that make the decisions, would you like to see them getting to care homes more often now?
1: Yeah, that's an easy one, isn't it? The, the yes is the answer the I, I love a I love a visit. And I love a visit just because you partly because you get out and you get a scone and you get to meet people. But the, the other reason is it, it's much, much easier to give advice. If you understand the context, Pe- people don't walk in my shoes, so they can understand what I've been doing. But equally, my, I need to walk in other people's shoes to understand their environment. Now that might be the Erskine board. That's important. But it's also the Erskine residents and the Erskine families and the broader social care sector. The new Cabinet Secretary for Health, Hamza Youssef, is is a real extrovert. He's, he's very keen. He's only been in the job four weeks, but he's very keen to get out and visit. And over the summer, Parliament rises uh, today, in fact, for a few weeks. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to get him out and about a little bit more and care homes will be one of the places we'll be taking him.
0: That's yes, the voice of Professor Jason Leach, Clinical Director for Scotland, and um, he's with us here on Erskine Veterans Radio answering some of your questions. A few more questions to come, but right now we're going to take a musical break. And uh, Professor Jason, could you please choose us a song? On Tuesday you were giving us some of your favourite country tunes. Uh, where are we going today?
1: Am I allowed gospel? Oh, why not? Absolutely. So, so I, I've got... But, but, Perhaps people who have followed me in the media will know I have, a, I have an actual faith, a real deep faith. It's one of the things that has kept me going uh, in this chaos. I've, I've been at the Baptist Church in Airdrie for many, many years. And it's a kind of mix of country and gospel because one of the, the best modern country music singers is a woman called Carrie Underwood. And uh, many of you will know her. Uh, and she uh, has a new gospel album, which I would recommend to anybody remotely interested in in gospel music. But uh, I I, my favorite from that, and it's partly again, because it's my mum and dad's favourite is how great they are. So let's have Carrie Underwood and how great they are.
0: The choice of Professor Jason Leach, National Clinical Director for Scotland, joining us this week on Erskine Veterans Radio to answer some more of your questions. And a few more to come. Uh, let's move to them then. And here's the next one. Caroline, the Home Manager at the Erskine Home, says, what more can be done to promote the role of registered nurses working in care homes and overcome, maybe you might call it the snobbery of registered nurses in some other fields of practice?
1: Yeah, I think that's one that I would back a little. I'm not... Not sure I I can help with that much, but it's an important point. I, I think uh, the kind of, let's call it the sectoral biases between uh, a ICU job or a GP practice job or a care home job, I think we should get rid of those biases. I think the, these are enormously valuable jobs, really, really important and very challenging and professionally Uh, developing so you you can you, you don't have to stay in any of these jobs forever you can move around and i think time in a residential home or in social care is time well spent and i think amanda croft who's our relatively new chief nurse would be delighted to talk to uh, Caroline and think about if there are practical ways we could make that more possible.
0: Alison, the Home Manager at the Erskine Edinburgh Home, says, how do you see the structure of Scottish health and care services in the future, like hospitals, care homes, uh, related to the Feely review which has been happening?
1: Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? So that's a reference to the National Care Service, which I'm very, very supportive of, and I'm glad that each of the parties, actually, when they were uh, writing their manifestos, said that they supported a national care service. There was some nuance in there about what what they meant. But then now the party of government has said that they they want a national care service. They've appointed the first ever minister for social care, a man called Kevin Stewart, and they've changed the cabinet secretary's job title to include social care in the title. So I think they're serious about it. And behind the scenes, the uh, likes of me and my civil service colleagues are working on what that might look like i i think structure which is what the question is about is one element of that so i think we will end up with a national care service we will have a mixed market of private public and third sector provision so it it won't be that the government own all the care homes or the government own all the social care workers but i think we should join it up more i think we should have a, a a way of managing the market financially all of those structural things But actually, the structure is only a means to an end. What we actually need is an integrated, person-centered, family-centered care system. And that will need some really difficult politics about money and funding and not my job. That's why we elect politicians. But it will need Erskine and others to help us with what that should look like in terms of compassion and end-of-life care and what, what, what that care should look like. And I, th- I think we have to do that in partnership with-, with families, with residents, with staff and everybody else as we think over the next couple of years what that will look like. But I think it's exciting. I think it's an interesting time to be in care services and I, I-, I do see some real mood for fairly radical change.
0: And Findlay Macquarie, who's a resident in McKellar House at the Erskine home, says, um, can Jason remind the Chief Medical Officer that Erskine's doing national work in health and welfare field and would welcome higher financial support from the government? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll be very happy to tell Gregor that, but Gregor will say exactly what I would say, is that it's not Gregor's job or my job to, to sort out the funding, but we do know the people who it is their job and that's the politicians. So that that's a question that should, of course, be directed to our political leadership. And I'm very happy to to do that. And everybody at Erskine should take that opportunity as well. I'm sure Ian and and others involved would would be happy to do that. I think the point is fair that uh, when there are national third sector organisations such as Erskine, then the funding of them is really important, particularly at a time where public funding, charitable funding has been a real problem in the pandemic for cancer charities, for care charities, for the whole sector. And the Scottish Government, it's not my role or job, but I know the Scottish Government is very aware of that gap. There is, of course, a limited budget. There isn't a money tree, despite what people might think. And there are choices, tricky choices in there. For politicians but i i think the care sector represents its way represents itself well in those conversations and i will do all i can to help
0: and we will face pandemics again in future that that is uh, uh, an absolute cert but hopefully not for a while but when the next one does hit are we better prepared now than ever we've been
1: yes we are the the most likely pandemic to hit is of course still a flu pandemic that that's what we had expected it's what every country in the world expected and we didn't get a flu pandemic, we got a coronavirus pandemic, you, you, we cannot predict what the next pathogen will be. But yes, I hope it's a 100 years away. But we have a, an infrastructure in public health, in PPE, in testing that will serve us well going into the future. There will also now, of course, be a series of inquiries, a series of learning events. I hope they are about learning, not about blame about what we can do now, and what we can be better at in the future. And I think we should take them very seriously. I think we should use them for good, not for point scoring. And I hope that's what all the governments in the world, including the WHO and others will do in Scotland will be part of that inquiry infrastructure, of course.
0: Well, Professor Jason Leach, it's been great spending this time with you over the last couple of shows and answering questions from people right across Erskine and uh, hopefully you've given people a bit of a boost, I hope, and uh, shown that there is light at the end of the tunnel if we uh, hang on in there a little bit longer. And huge thanks for taking time out of your schedule to, to join us on Erskine Veterans Radio
1: thanks for having me and it's been an absolute pleasure
0: and if i could trouble you for one final song to play us out please over to you
1: well i'm gonna i'm gonna bring things down a little so you might have to turn your uh, speakers up a little there's a fantastic i think she would probably call herself a folk musician actually rather than a country musician a woman called Rhiannon Giddens and i heard her live not not long before the pandemic at the concert hall and it was an astonishing evening of songs and she She's, she's modernized quite a lot of slave music and she had a whole album of old uh, slave music. And I, I think the best one on it is called We Could Fly. So let's finish with Rhiannon Giddens' We Could Fly. I think it has an excellent sentiment.